2: Coming up tomorrow on Forum, in the last year and a half, many people have decided to go gray and some have happily chosen never to cover their roots again. It's a sign of how the pandemic has forced us to rethink our attitudes towards appearance. Have you embraced the silver? Tell us why by leaving us a voicemail at 415-553-3300. That's 415-553-3300. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. For the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I first heard the name Ben Fong Torres when I watched the movie Almost Famous. William Miller. This is he. William, this is Ben Fong Torres. I'm the music editor at Rolling Stone magazine. I remember being surprised to see that the music editor at Rolling Stone back in the 70s was Asian American or part Latino and thinking there must be a story there. Well, the story of San Francisco rock journalist Ben Fong Torres has recently been captured in a new documentary by Suzanne Jo Kai called Like a Rolling Stone. And joining me now is Ben Fong Torres. Welcome to Forum. Ben, are you there?
0: Let me unmute here. Okay. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to be uh, on Forum.
2: Well, it's nice to have you on. And it was also very nice to learn through the documentary how you came to have the name Ben Fong Torres, even though Uh, your parents uh, were ethnically Chinese. Can you tell that story?
0: Well, uh, yeah, sure. Why not? I've told it before, I think, once or twice. And that is that my father in China, uh, aspired to come to America, as so many Chinese did. And uh, there were several ways to circumvent the Chinese Exclusion Act, paper sons and all, but uh, his way turned out to be on the advice of people who knew he had worked in the Philippines as a teenager for a year or two to make money for the family, and uh, said, hey, Uh, if you want to go to America, here's one way to do it. Go as a Filipino national. They are allowed in there. What you have to do is get a birth certificate uh, that uh, changes your race, basically, uh, from Chinese to Filipino. So he did, and he became Ricardo Torres after paying somewhere over $1,000 for this document. And uh, on arrival, he began to work uh, in the restaurant business and did okay enough that it was time soon enough for him to look for a bride. So that was done by friends and relatives in China. And my mother came over in about 1939 and uh, they started raising a family. And the firstborn was Sarah, my sister. And a family friend uh, spoke with them at the hospital, I believe, and said, hey, dude, what are you going to be calling these kids of yours? They can't be Fong because your legal name here is Torres. They can't be Torres because your real name is Fong. And so it was this friend who created this uh, mysterious last name uh, without the hyphen. The kids came along, learned grammar and punctuation, and we hyphenated it. And that's so that's how Fong Torres came to be.
2: How old were you when you learned that history? Was it something you had always known, or did you remember learning it at an older age?
0: Uh, at an older age, I would say, probably as a teenager, uh, throughout grammar school, we had no idea. And um, so, whole oh, I don't know, my parents would make up uh, stories saying why we have Taurus in the name, because they didn't want us going around school spreading the word that he was here illegally. <laughs> so we had to kind of stay hush about it until, of course, as teenagers, we, we rebelled and found out what the real story was and we still kept it a secret most of the time uh with with friends and and uh, whoever else we ran into
2: well the musicians and entertainers that you interviewed found it cool do you feel like that sort of um you know hard to play sort of heritage often called being sort of an outsider helped you <laughs> break the ice with artists who sort of saw themselves as outsiders too
0: Well, that's a perfect point. Uh, Thank you. Yes. uh, I think it was a a way of of, um, not binding, but just connecting. um, Because I was seen as an other as well as them. They on the entertainment level, me on the uh, repertorial level. Mm -hmm. But uh, this guy walks in and he's not a white guy, you know. And so right away, (laughs) that makes a difference. And oh, and this Chinese guy is with Rolling Stone. You know, by that time, let's say the early 70s, the magazine had uh, become one of the biggest things in uh, rock media or music media. And so for this Chinese-American to come walking in with long hair and a mustache and tape recorder and a notebook and coming in equipped with knowledge about them as artists and performers, uh, it definitely, I think, made a difference. Nobody kept, nobody ever said, hey, you're Chinese and you're one of us. No, nothing like that, but it was more subtle, but you, do, you did feel uh, that camaraderie.
2: Yeah, well, as you allude to, it was much more than your name that they were able to feel camaraderie uh, with you about. It was also the fact that they really respected the way you wrote about musical artists and entertainers. I remember, Ray, you know, Manzrak, the keyboardist for The Door, saying that you really got The Doors or Tina Turner opening up to you about the fact that she didn't love the raspy voice that her audience (laughs) wanted from her or Ray Charles telling you about the frustrations that he experienced, racism and cultural appropriation. Yeah. Did you want to add something to that? No, not me. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. And so you have said that you have been drawn to the stories of people who are marginalized. And I was wondering why.
0: Well, I'm not sure I ever really said that. I think I felt like uh, for whatever reason, just as a music fan, as a kid, I felt more drawn to soul and rhythm and blues music uh, than to the uh, top 40 uh, pop music. I like rock and roll a lot, uh, but I also like country, partly because of that year I spent with my father in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, but by and large, R&B spoke more to me than others. And so there at Rolling Stone, it was kind of uh, um, kind of expected that I would cover the Motown Act and uh, certain others like Ray Charles and and uh, later in life, James Brown and just numerous giants, Gladys Knight and the Pips and the Pointer Sisters and BB King and I don't know there's no particular reason for it it kind of sprang from my childhood musical tastes and that I was lucky enough to be able to employ at Rolling Stone.
2: We're talking with Ben Fong Torres, journalist, DJ, author of Not Fade Away in the Rice Room, among many other titles. We're talking about a new documentary that features him titled Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres. And if you are a fan of his writing, tell us what, who is a musician that Ben Fong Torres introduced you to or a Rolling Stone interview that has stayed with you. You can tell us at 866-733-6786. You can, of course, ask your questions or share thoughts on Ben Fong Torres. Uh, at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I want to play a clip from the documentary. This is of you describing who you were in high school and why you think you were so well-suited or what made you potentially well-suited for journalism.
0: remember that when I was able to go to a party uh, in high school, for example, I would often wind up asking people questions and never talking about myself. I think I felt like, what's there to say about bussing dishes? And so I began to just kind of take notes on other people's affairs and events and news. And that probably led to the choice to be a writer about other people's stories.
2: Ben Fong Torres, I was so struck by that comment (laughs) that you made, because I have felt sort of similarly in some ways that... Mm -hmm. Have you examined that feeling? You do say that I felt like what's there to say about bussing dishes. But have yeah. you connected that to other parts of your life or other ways that you felt as an Asian American growing up in the U.S.?
0: I think I've gotten over that. Uh, <laughs> <Latin content. laughs> I do have some stories to tell now. Uh, so, uh, thank God for Suzanne Joe for letting me do that. But, uh, you know, I remember a couple of yearbook entries, you know, we signed autographs at the end of the uh, senior year. And there were a couple of girls who reminded me how I, uh, spoke with them at parties and, and, and I had gained their confidence and they would tell me about their own romantic troubles. Well, since I had no romance, that was no problem for me. And I became some kind of a, uh, like, a, like a counselor for them. So it wasn't just me taking note of their activities uh, and, and, and their problems or whatever. Uh, it was offering a, a kind of, I don't know why they would think I would be able to offer advice. I had no experience, um, but uh, they, you know, they, they enjoyed those times we had a chance to, to converse outside the classroom at a party or two uh, when I was allowed to go to one. And so I think I can draw a line between those experiences and becoming a reporter asking questions and being empathetic and um, making a connection, trying for a conversation rather than a straight ahead question and answer session, uh, rote questions um, were never my thing. So that all came I think from my teen years, but I don't know that I uh, still have those inclinations.
2: Well, certainly those skills were something that really built Rolling Stone. And I was surprised to also learn just how early in the magazine's life that you became involved and how much you were credited with really turning it into the magazine that could make or break a career. Can you talk about what Rolling Stone was like when you started? What stage it was in?
0: Oh, God, it was just this tabloid newspaper um, with uh, one color along with black and uh 35 cents i think it was and uh, my roommates were all involved in or getting involved in media and music of one sort or another and so we all glommed onto the paper it was staffed only by about maybe three people and a part-time accountant uh jan was counting his money early jan winner and uh, because he yes, had so little of it you know it started on seven thousand dollars investment from himself his family and ralph j gleason the um uh, noted jazz and pop critic for the Chronicle. That's how they started it. So when I uh, got there, and well, how I got there was that a roommate of mine who worked with um, music uh, bands said um, that, that there was this free show down at the park on Steiner Street uh, that afternoon uh, in, in, in a day or two, promoting a movie being made by Dick Clark about the Haight-Ashbury. So I thought, what Dick Clark from American Bandstand doing the hippies story. Uh, This I've got to hear more about. So I called Rolling Stone, the offices, and uh, said, do you know about this? And they did not. So I wrote what amounted to what would be called later a random note, just a few paragraphs about this event and the movie uh, that it was um, um, connected to. And that pretty much opened the door, and I began to pester them with more story ideas and When KMPX, the original uh, Freeform Rock Station, went on strike, uh, I called Rolling Stone and offered uh, help because of my love of radio and having been on it for a little while. And so that started my work for Rolling Stone as a freelancer. That was spring, summer of 1968. (laughs) And it uh, was a year before Jan uh, wrote me uh, a note on it. pay stub and said come have lunch with me and uh, let's talk so then he hired me to be basically whatever I thought needed to be done there was no particular title I think I might have begun as just an assistant editor and then news editor and then associate editor and then a uh, senior editor and uh, like that and uh, it was pretty fast moving and I must say that in the midst of that work putting out a publication, a growing one, every two weeks, I had very little sense of my status as a, an Asian American being uh, at a, uh, a pretty much all-white um, magazine staff. Uh, all of us were pretty much uh, intent on getting this thing out every two weeks and doing the best work we could, given what we had, the tools we had. And so that, that was, that's where I was at. Later on, years later, people would take note of my ethnicity and um, express their pride and and compliments and questions, but in the early going, it really was not a, a big deal, and it wasn't for a long, long time.
2: Well, this listener writes, I remember how Rolling Stone had the definitive interviews of musicians. If you wanted to know what someone like Elton John really thought, you'd go to Rolling Stone. Thanks to Ben Fong Torres for elevating the music. That's who we're talking to, Ben Fong Torres, about the documentary Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres. Uh, You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. That documentary is by the filmmaker Suzanne Jo Kai, and I'd like to invite Suzanne into the conversation now. Suzanne Jo Kai, Welcome to Forum. Hi, Nina. How are you? I'm well. <laughs> I, I read that this documentary was like 12 years in the making, a real labor of love. Tell me why it was so important to you that Ben Fong Tor's story be told.
3: Well, it started off as a, you know, I said, I just finished a 28-minute short film, No Sweat. And I said, this is going to be two years tops. And then I started to do the research, and every bit of research uh, was a revelation. And I actually blocked out the whole world, didn't want to read anything, didn't want to see anything, so I wouldn't be subliminally affected, you know, by what's out there already. And then when I did the deep dive and I came back, took a big breath and said, okay, what's out there? I couldn't find what I found because I was talking to insiders, insiders at Rolling Stone and in, insiders at the uh, uh, rock stars, the music industry, the community, his family. And then I t- took another deep breath. And I said, wait this story is missing. I mean, Ben's got a great, great books out there. He has an autobiography, but the connection I wanted was from his personal to his professional life at Rolling Stone. So that's what took so long. And, and, uh, uh, and I'm glad I, I did. I know I was very, I was wondering why is this taking so long? And then the next interview I would do was be another revelation. So I'm glad uh, we got it this far and it's done.
2: Well, Pete tweets, we rec- um, actually, this was a tweet that we received about Ben Fong 1974 Rolling Stone interview with Bob Dylan. In that article, Dylan says, there's always a need for protest songs. You just got to tap it. And Pete notes, we sure could use a protest song right now. So there's an article that stayed with somebody. Let me go to Greg in Oakland. Hi, Greg. What's your question?
1: Hey, good morning. I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you, Ben, for
0: all of your writing. I grew up going to tower records and grabbing bam magazine and reading david gans and grabbing rolling stone and reading you as much as i could i loved it i wanted to ask you what's the one interview that got away what's the one you Mm. wish you could have done that you didn't get to do and i'll take my answer off the air
2: thanks greg ben
0: well greg thank you very much for reading and remembering um there there really wasn't the one that got away i think the closest would be my teenage idol um elvis presley that um in, in the early 70s i had a chance to go to las vegas with a singer songwriter friend um to who was a friend of elvis's her name was jackie deshannon and uh so she said i'm gonna go to vegas and and hang out with elvis you want to come along and I said, well, I'd love to, but I have an interview with Steppenwolf, <laughs> John, John K. of Steppenwolf, Magic Carpet Ride, which Suzanne uses, I think, in Born to be Wild, something like that, at the beginning of uh, this documentary. So I skipped it, and she came back and said, oh, wow, you missed out, man. We, were, we hung out in the uh, kitchen of this hotel and, and talked all night. And so that was my <laughs> shot at the king, and I blew it.
2: Well, what a great problem to have, though. Wow. Tough choice. Um, Well, Suzanne, yes, Suzanne Jokai, really quick, as we just have about 30 seconds or so left, if there was something that you feel like Ben Fong Torres contributed that you really want audiences to realize and understand, whether it be to the culture, to um, journalism, there is much broader impact that your documentary shows that Ben Fong Torres made.
3: Definitely, definitely. There's many actually layers in this film, uh, and you're right, absolutely. Journalism, telling the truth. Uh, there's just so many takeaways that um, the audience is resonating. The, the screenings that we've we've uh, attended. Uh, my hope is that we're the world has been trying for diversity, equality, inclusion for decades and decades and decades. And my hope is that we'll entertain a wide audience as possible. And they'll get to know Ben Fong Torres. And so he's, he's, he's a, a, a person of color. Uh, he, he's also inspiring, and he's inspired a lot of people from all walks of life.
2: Well, Suzanne Jokai, filmmaker of the documentary Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres, plays this weekend at the Mill Valley Film Festival. Thank you, and thank you, Ben Fong Torres. You're listening to Farm. I'm Mimi Kim.